Axis Mundi. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our amazing lineup of creators. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco. And today I uh, have a long-awaited interview, something that I've been preparing for, been anticipating, and been very excited about. And that is with uh, two of the hosts of the very popular and a very important podcast, uh, Conspirituality. And those hosts are the also the authors or co-authors of a new book called Conspirituality. How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat. So I want to welcome Matthew Remsky and Julian Walker uh, to Straight White American Jesus. Great to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. So tons of questions. I have a document in front of me that uh, is quite long. We're not going to get to all of them, but you all work on this idea of conspirituality. And I think there's people listening who are fans of yours. They already know what you all do and the beat you cover. I think there's others who are meeting you for the first time. So I want to define conspirituality. I want to tell people what that is. It really is a kind of uh, <clears throat> a mixture or conjunction of conspiracy theories and uh, wellness or new age spirituality uh, leading to uh, some some pretty deleterious effects on individuals and on our public square. But before we do that, let's talk about the two of you and your stories. Uh, what made you into the authors of a book about conspirituality and the hosts of of your podcast? So, Julian, can we start with you? How did how did your road lead us here? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I actually came to the United States from South Africa when I was 19 years old, fleeing the apartheid draft, coming to the land of the free and the home of the brave where I believe the Woodstock nation would have rendered a complete transformation into, you know, a, a country of light and love and, and democratic freedom and tolerance. And that year I arrived and the, the uh, Iraq invasion happened and I had some, you know, some of the kinds of uh, rude awakenings that everyone else who lives here was already familiar with. And so I, I ended up staying. I came here to go to music school. And as part of my journey through music school, I realized that yoga really helps me with the difficulties of hunching over a music stand for many hours every day. And over time, I found that teaching yoga was a great way to supplement the non-existing income from being a starving musician. And I just, I, I got very ensconced in the yoga and new age and wellness scene for uh, a good 20, 30 years in, in one way or another. And when the pandemic hit, I started to notice, you know, there's a lot of things going on on my social media timeline that I did not expect, but then that made sense to me in a weird way because of the type of critique I had developed about New Age spirituality over the years. And that critique was developed in part through my association with Matthew. And in part through my association with Derek, largely through online writing and, and conversation. And we, you know, we, we just took that conversation to the next level and it turned into the podcast and the podcast turned into the book. That's fantastic. Uh, and you are, uh, you're, you're based in LA, which I think is at least one of the, the, the world's 
perhaps centers for uh, new age spirituality, wellness culture, and so on. So you're right, you're right there in the thick of it all. Matthew, let's let's talk about you. You you have a, a fascinating story and it one with many twists and turns. So how did you arrive at this moment? Sorry. That's all right. Like Julian, I left home fairly early as well, before finishing high school, under a lot of stress. It wasn't political stress. And after trying to make it as a novelist for a few years, I met and married an older woman who got me into Tibetan Buddhism. And through that, we fell in with a guy named Michael Roach. And I will not forget the first meeting because uh, he was teaching a basic sort of intro to Buddhist renunciation. And he said, you know, the central or first question that we ask is, or that we realize is that, you know, you are going to die. Uh, now, what are you going to do about it? And I felt electrified by some kind of existential challenge at that moment. And he turned out to be, you know, a charismatic whirlwind and a bit of a nightmare. He was both a, a legitimate monk in the lineage of the Dalai Lama. He was also illegitimate in a lot of ways. But after three very culty years with him, it fell apart. And then my wife and I wound up in another group, this one in Wisconsin, and it was centered around A Course in Miracles. Another three years there, and then I was out in the gig economy. I think similarly like uh, Julian, finding myself at the crossroads of this time where the yoga industry is taking off uh, and neoliberalism is also just becoming the political norm. I studied hard. I opened studios. I ran a festival. Uh, I learned and practiced like popular commercial forms of Ayurveda and even, I hesitate to say, Vedic astrology. <laughs> and uh, I also had a number of disillusionment events uh, that were centered around medical crises and that showed me how full of shit I was about my knowledge of the body and how, I don't know, proud I was about just the world in general, how vulnerable I was. And that got me up to about 2016, which is when I started to get back into writing uh, more professionally. And from there, the proximal cause of getting into the podcast was spending about four years doing investigative journalism on cults. So I wrote a book about how the founder of Ashtanga Yoga, Patabi Joyce, had been aided and abetted by his senior devotees as he sexually assaulted his students on a daily basis for 40 years. Um, I wrote features on similar crimes and, and themes in Shambhala Buddhism and Shivananda Yoga. And looking back on that, it's kind of funny to think that I was doing this at the same time that QAnon was starting to kick into high gear. And in some ways, it was beneficial because it gave me a good foundation in cult literature and studies. And in other ways, you know, this training in brick and mortar cults really seemed to be insufficient to deal with this new thing that we were looking at. But I think it gave me some preparation once the pandemic hit. That's the, a phrase I'm not going to forget. Brick and mortar cults. That's incredible. Yeah, it, 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 incredible. Now envisioning a Saturday Night Live skit where there's uh, folks who are lamenting the demise of the brick and mortar cult <laughs> at the hands of the online versions. Uh, yeah, exactly. All right. We need, we need to return to artisanal cults. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Mom and pop shop. Uh, what happened to the neighborhood cult? Okay. All right. I'm done. So fantastic to hear about your stories. I think one of the things that resonates me deeply with y'all is that on our show, Dan and I are really former insiders who now provide right this former insider lens, but also this scholarly lens. 
And I really feel like that, you know, the the three of you do that as well. You all have your various uh, experiences in, in these communities. And yet uh, now you can provide this more studied, scholarly, academic, journalistic, however you want to describe it, approach to these things. So let's get into some definitions. Let's talk about what conspirituality is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that a lot of writers hate, and, and you may hate too, but uh, hopefully it's not too bad. I'm going to read a sentence from your book, and then I want you to, to sort of just respond and fill in some things about the definition. So, Julian, I'll come to you first. Page eight. In its current form, we see it, conspirituality, as an online religion that fuses two faith claims. The world is possessed by evil forces, and those who see this clearly are called to foster in themselves and others a new spiritual paradigm. And I, I recognize that not all forms of conspirituality may be online, and that this quote may sort of leave some of that out. But nonetheless, we have these two things. The world is possessed by evil forces, and those who see clearly are called to foster a new spiritual paradigm. Yeah. So essentially, when we started to become aware that there already was this body of work that had coined this term, conspirituality, uh, going back to uh, Charlotte Ward and David Forrest in 2011, what we found was that they were looking at this as an emergent phenomenon on the internet in which this overlapping kind of epistemology and, and worldview existed between the darker, more paranoid, more typically male-coded realm of the conspiracy theorist and the more typically feminine-coded light and love. Everything is unfolding in accordance with the divine plan of the new age. And that they were already tracking back then. This has interesting uh, counterintuitive overlaps. And those overlaps are, are summed up by these three statements. Nothing is as it seems. Everything is connected. And everything happens for a reason or nothing happens by accident. And so you can see how if you look at that through the lens of a, a very positive take, an optimistic take on the universe, well, yeah, nothing is as it seems. So the bad stuff is not really so bad. It's all for the highest good. God has a plan would be the more traditional way of saying it, right? Everything is connected. You are not alone. You are not, you are not lost in a, in a sea of meaninglessness. Your, your life has purpose and you are, you are woven into the tapestry of the universe. And there are no accidents. Just go with it. Go with the flow. But from, from a more paranoid point of view, oh, don't, <laughs> don't try to, that. These are not coincidences. Someone is behind this and, and nothing is as it seems. It's actually much darker. And there are, there are people behind the, the curtain pulling the strings. And uh, yeah, so, so we, we just started to say, okay, uh, this, this is a very accurate insight and it, it, it fits with what we're observing. Let's go deeper and study how it's unfolding right now. Anything to if add I, to that, Matthew? Yeah. Yeah. If I can add that Julian pinged that Ward and Voas uh, describe a kind of gendered binary within the discourse. And I think that holds true to a certain extent, although there's a lot of crossover and we can't generalize too much, but there's this other binary at play, which is that they say, and we can confirm that for the person who's really invested in the paranoid worldview of conspiracy theories, the new age spirituality provides a kind of relief. Conversely, for the person who has spent their life in new age reverie, uh, the political conspiracy theories gives them something to do in the world. It, it breaks the boredom of you know endless smoothies, for example. And what really strikes me most about the phenomenon is that 
the two ideas that, you know, as we say, uh, the world is possessed by evil forces and those who see this clearly are called to foster in themselves and others a new spiritual paradigm. They're collapsed. Like they happen at the same time. Like you are blessed. You have an opportunity because you've intuited how bad or illusory or satanic things are. And that implies that you actually need the world to be a horrible, condemnable place for your spirituality to work or to be activated. I feel like there should be a name for that. Like, I don't know, spiritual Munchausen's by proxy or something like that. Like you have to poison the world with your vision in order to save it. So yeah, I, I just find it fascinating. It's it's also, I, th I think, particularly relevant that we're talking to you today, Brad, because uh, it also is a new iteration, I would offer, of uh, apocalypticism in which there is a, a golden age to come in which everything will be light and love in the, in the new age parlance. But first, we have to get through this cataclysmic uh, prophecy and, and we have to wake up to how bad everything is so we can manifest uh, the reality that we truly want, which is going to be 5D awakening and ascension and contact with the aliens and all the rest of it. It's already here, though. It's already well, here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, at the time of recording yesterday, it seems the US government confirmed the existence of alien life forms. Anyway, whole nother <laughs> podcast. Uh, I, so there's just so much depth here and so much insight. One of the things that really gets me just as somebody who studies the religious right and Christian nationalism and comes from that world is that this world resonates so deeply, as you say, Julian, there is an apocalypticism here that that feels very similar to what I'm used to. There's also a sense of a divine plan and nothing nothing happens on accident. That's, uh, of course, uh, part of the the world I come from, too. The thing, however, that I think is different is this binary between, uh, in some sense, the alienation from a world that has gone awry. That's familiar. But then there's also that love and light and the invitation into a world of of joy and healing and, and wholeness that it is, I think, coded differently. Now, you'll get that in the Christian Nationalist universe, but it's, it's of course, just coded differently in the kinds of communities and movements that you're talking about. Uh, and the boredom of endless smoothies. I, if you if you all write a sequel to this book, I hope the title is the boredom of endless smoothies because that is just <laughs> incredible stuff. Uh, <laughs> now, on page fifty, you point out uh, something that I think is just at least worth bringing up for a moment here, and that is that the, the conspirituality worldview does have legitimate concerns. It does have pro-social impulses, and I think this is true of many of the people that I cover as well. That. It's not that they woke up one day and said, I want to be somebody who follows a conspiracy theorist who becomes uh, duped by uh, a QAnon uh, influencer and uh, ends up storming the Capitol because I just want to be a terrible human. There are people who want uh, the world to be better. They do have concerns. Page 50, if we do not acknowledge the things conspiritualists get right, how much credibility will we have when it comes to pointing out what they get wrong? So just as a as an attempt to think ourselves into uh, some of these communities and individuals, what are some of those concerns that seem legitimate to you, even if they are often manifested and executed in ways that are hurtful and uh, conspiratorial? Matthew, do you want to start? Yeah, I want to thank you for the question, because I think the most important chapter of our book, in my opinion, is called Conspiritualists Are Not Wrong. And I'm proud of it because it does get into this territory of how honest we can be about how basic systems in society are corrupt or dysfunctional, and moreover, about how terrible people 
get away with terrible behavior all the time. We hear endless stories from listeners and interview subjects who describe descending down the rabbit hole of what's really a kind of institutional distrust, uh, and that that begins with something like a, a cancer diagnosis, where the person feels ignored or brushed off or bankrupted by their medical bills. Women will describe the well-known experience of not having their pain taken seriously or not feeling as though they consented to procedures during childbirth at this time that's meant to be sacred and profound. And then there are the issues of accountability and abuse. You know, they, they, conspiritualists are not wrong that Epstein probably abused girls in order to manipulate political and financial power. They're not wrong that the Catholic Church is basically a, a, a crime cartel in part of it uh, that, that is involved in shuffling uh, abusive priests around uh, and limiting liability. They're not wrong that surveillance capitalism monetizes you know, identities and all of our activities uh, and bloats the, the, the bank accounts of, of its leaders. So they have a very accurate cynicism about the realities of late-stage capitalism. They're just not wrong about any of that. And the question is, what solutions are, going, are they going to harvest from a broken internet? Julian, what would you add to that? That's very comprehensive. I mean, I would just say they, they, are, they are cynical and critical about neoliberalism, late-stage capitalism, late-stage capitalism, and the, the world that we find ourselves in today, especially with regard to big tech, uh, without recognizing that they are very much a product of all of that, and that the solutions they're coming up with, even though they're not wrong about the problems, the solutions uh, don't don't actually contain accurate analysis and and uh, prescription. So it's a tragic situation. This is another one of the resonances I feel between the the folks that you you study and uh, and analyze and and my world because there are there are so many folks who again recognize the evils of the world. They recognize the brokenness of systems. They recognize the abuse that it levels upon certain people and. They're looking for answers, and I think one of the things that I found uh, in in your work, and I find in my own, is that people are facing a, an onslaught of uncertainty, and they get to a breaking point where enough uncertainty means they're willing to engage in a, in in epistemologies and in authority structures that often are uh, not going to do anything to actually uh, help with that abuse, those crises, et cetera and are actually going to make them worse, but they get there because of this feeling of bewilderment in a world that, that in some ways doesn't make sense. In the book, you all provide just example after example of conspirituality, conspiritualist, conspir <laughs> conspiritualists, <laughs> yeah. there we go, conspiritualists, yeah. and people that I think many will have heard of. I mean, we are going to get to QAnon. I do want to talk about Joe Rogan. So if you're listening and you're kind of wondering about maybe people that you heard of or that your uncle brings up at a barbecue or something, there you go. But I want to bring up some folks that just stand out as examples of this that I know uh, are, are, are really important and that many folks listening may not be aware of. So I'm just going to say a name. I have some notes here and things that I kind of want to get to, but I'm going to say a name and let, uh, let y'all just fill us in on who they are and how they fit into the category of a conspiritualist and, and what they meant or do mean as a leader 
as a conspiracy theorist, as perhaps an abuser, as perhaps a influencer, whatever it may be. So I'll start here. Teal Swan. I say Teal Swan. You say, what do you say? <laughs> Julian? I say Teal Swan is the bridge between uh, classic satanic panic going back to, say, the late 80s, early 90s, and what we see in terms of QAnon uh, forming its strange alliance with the New Age from the time of the pandemic onwards. Teal Swan is an incredibly photogenic, eloquent, intelligent influencer and, and self-styled spiritual teacher from a very young age who used a backstory about horrific satanic abuse that she supposedly endured as a child to create her legitimacy as someone who had deep spiritual influence and a deep spiritual uh, insight and could help people who she found online through very effectively hacking algorithms who were suffering the, the effects of trauma and, uh, and emotional pain. I would add that uh, she really embodies the very collapse between um, the conspiratorial worldview and the enlightened perspective in the fact that her survivorship of satanic ritual abuse is her education, it's her degree, it's her credibility. Like those two things are intrinsic. And, you know, we're going to say that she's a supposed survivor of satanic ritual abuse, but a likely survivor of run-of-the-mill child sexual abuse committed by a family friend. And there's all kinds of evidence for it. Jennings Brown did a fantastic uh, podcast called The Gateway where that we drew on heavily. Uh, she was described by her scientists turned new agey parents as being a highly sensitive person or child, which I think is coding for neurodivergent. Um, she starts doing spiritual talks and readings in her early 20s. And as Julian mentions, she built an online empire getting in at the ground floor years and years ago with a pretty diverse portfolio where, you know, she would not only give her spiritual teachings, but she would also give kind of like Cole's notes or what's the American version of Cliff's uh, notes, Cliff's notes of, yeah. of sort of basic psychotherapeutic theory, right? Like this is what gaslighting is. And then she would sort of plagiarize something and comment on it. Uh, this is what attachment, disorganized attachment is like. So there would be a, there's also a pseudo academic uh, angle to her educational aspect. Uh, and yeah, she's been incredibly uh, influential in figuring out how to zero in on and monetize the notion of trauma in, in modern online life. And I would just add to that, that the, the claim when we say supposed and when I say she's sort of the bridge between Satanic Panic Classic and QAnon, it, it, the, the main piece of data there is that we found that she did therapy with Barbara Snow, who is one of the major figures in the Satanic Panic interface between the legal system and a now completely discredited approach to uh, recovered memory psychotherapy. So if folks are listening at home, many of them will be familiar with the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s. Uh, this is a, a, and friends, if you're listening and you 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 need background on that, go to our website and, and look for my interview with Megan Goodwin, who wrote a book called Abusing Religion and covers this at length. But the satanic panic really is this, this panic in the 80s and 90s about the supposed abuse at the hands of 
you know, uh, satanic communities across the country. We could talk about the Mem- the West Memphis Three. We could talk about other events that that's point to this. If if you have ever heard jokes about listening to cassette tapes, you know, in reverse and hearing uh, Satan worship, this is this is where that comes from. There were congressional hearings. There were concerns that if you dropped your kids off at daycare, there was they were going to be participating in satanic rituals. So I guess what I'm hearing from the two of you is that Teal Swan is somebody who undergoes, it appears, some form of abuse, attends and is 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 treated in therapy by Barbara Snow, and eventually the story becomes whether this is confirmed or not. And as you all are explaining, it's supposed uh, the abuse becomes rendered as satanic abuse, and then this leads to as you're saying, a kind of spiritual approach to healing. And that is what would mean that Teal Swan is a conspiracist and a spirituality uh, figure, meaning that that Teal Swan is a conspiritualist. Is that is that right? I mean, fill in the blanks for me there. What did I what did I miss or what's important to get right? Well, I think that when Julian correctly pegs her as a bridge to the satanic panic, we have to remember that um the entire movement kicks off with the publication of a book called Michelle Remembers, uh, which was uh, an account from hypnotically recorded therapy sessions uh, conducted by Dr. Larry Pazder on his client at the time, Michelle Smith. And she supposedly remembered in great detail, vision after vision, memory after memory of being five years old and being subjected to the most horrific kinds of abuse in a satanic cult in the 1950s in the very bucolic Canadian town of Victoria, British Columbia. Now, what we should remember and what we tried to outline in a very long series of episodes about this entire sort of connection called the Swan Song series, um, Pastor was a devout Catholic psychiatrist who like Father Damien in The Exorcist, is is going through a professional crisis in which he realizes that his client, with whom he's spending increasing amounts of time daily, can only really be cured of her history through a Catholic religious framework that he not only elicits from her, but then she also senses that he needs and she begins to feed to him as well. Now, there's zero evidence for the claims that she makes about her history. That doesn't matter. Uh, You know, the book is debunked almost from the go by journalists trying to figure out whether she's saying anything that makes sense. Uh, But still, they got a $250,000 advance for the book, and they became celebrities who no one investigated. Uh, And they ended up like creating this training circuit for therapists and law enforcement officials um, as a married couple, because that also happened as well. (laughs) The purpose of, of that little background is to suggest that a main thrust in all of Uh, satanic panic history and its legacy down to the present day is that there are no secular solutions. There are no social programs. There are no reforms that people can make of, of, you know, institutions that will do any good. What has to happen is what happened at the end of Michelle Remembers, which is that the Virgin Mary herself comes down and blesses Michelle with uh, a redemptive vision of how you know she's survived this thing and now she'll exist she'll continue to live and 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 act as a kind of cautionary tale for the reality of satan in the world um so yeah it's it's, it's an extremely important part of of the present day context 
Yeah. So not only is there, there has to be a religious solution to this, not a merely psychological one, but the cause of these kinds of terrible events is the absence of God in the world, the, 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 the ascendancy of Satan. Well, what I would add specifically to your question, Brad, is that when we say Teal Swan is a good spiritualist, it's not just because of all of this, this supernatural confabulation and, and backstory and, and becoming, it's almost like a, an initiatory story that, that gives some gravitas to the claim of being a spiritual teacher. I have made it through the gates of hell. And so therefore I can, I, I really have downloaded the wisdom. But even more than that, the reason why she's in the book is that then she pivots when COVID starts. And in the first week, like several of the people we cover, like Kelly Brogan and CRG, like Mickey Willis, there, there's a whole list of them that in the first week, they are ready to go with their interpretation of what COVID-19 really is. And it's not what the mainstream media is telling you. And it's the fear that is the real virus. And this is all an attempt to take away your spiritual sovereignty. And we're off to the races, getting clicks and views and collaborating with one another and starting to generate a ton of money early on and just riding that wave all the way through the pandemic. And it's so rich that their premise was that COVID was planned because what was really planned, what was really stored up, what was in the hopper already to go was their particular story that they would apply to a public health yeah. disaster, right? Yeah. There was nothing that they said throughout the pandemic that they hadn't said a thousand times before. It's just that the urgency was, was ramped up. And the urgency was really about, and I think this is where it overlaps with your work, Bradley, is that it's the urgency of the absence of God. And I wanted to ask you actually uh, about that because at the front of Michelle Remembers, there's a, it opens with a statement, a famous statement from Pope Paul VI uh, in 1972, where he says, evil is, is an effective agent, a living spiritual being, perverted and perverting a terrible reality. One of the greatest needs is defense from the evil, which is called the devil. The question of the devil and the influence he can exert on individual persons, as well as on communities, whole societies, or events is very important. It should be studied again. And so we really sort of, or I really, as an ex-Catholic, really zeroed in on this. And, and I thought, oh, wow the Catholic Church was losing, and other denominations were losing a kind of epistemological hold on the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And so they needed to do something. They had to do something. Is, does that resonate with you? It does very much. So I think one of the things that really sticks out here is that uh, whether it's the COVID pandemic, whether it is changing social dynamics of the late 1970s, early 1980s, when there's uncertainty, when there is a disruption to the social fabric, people are rife for explo exploitation because they're unsure. I mean, look, we were all there in the pandemic. What do we do? Can I go to can I go to the grocery store? Is it safe? Is it not safe? Can I go to the park with my kid? You know, all of those questions in, in the very beginnings of the pandemic were just like uh, open to all of us. And I think what these what I would call spiritual warfare motifs. These, these ideas that there are evil forces in the world, but you are needed to combat them. So in my world, in the Christian nationalist world, it's about being a, a godly soldier, a Christian soldier willing to stand up to Satan's army. Uh, in the ways that you know I see in, in your work, that's rendered differently, but it's, it's similar in the sense that you're invited to join in a battle for good that will repair yourself and the, the entire universe. 
And that's why a secular answer is never going to be good enough and it's never offered because what you need is not programs that will improve people's lives or <laughs> right systemic change that will make things on the whole more <laughs> healthy, more accessible, more, you know, what you need is a silver bullet, right? It's always a silver bullet. It's like, I need perfect healing. I need an absolute closure. I need 100% recovery from my wound, from the, the evil. And I think that's what is so similar to me when I think about these things is you're invited into a war or a battle. It's spiritual or, uh, or, or divine in nature. And the end result is not an improved social square where more people have access to healthcare and education. Where more, <laughs> where, where less children yeah. are. No, no, forget that's, it. That's why none of this stuff is left trending. It's, it's not actually about, and it's like, even though there may be in our case, a light and love messaging, it's not that's, for everyone. It's for the chosen few. And there, you know, there's another point of fantastic intersection. And I want to, I want to say it right here, if you don't mind, just because of, of the connections that you're drawing and the distinctions that you're making, because yes, amongst the new agers, the prophecy of the great awakening that was going to mean the planet entered into 5D uh, consciousness and that we finally realized alien disclosure and you know that everything was now going to be radically changed for the awakened ones that had a quality of like um energetic uh sort of gauzy we're just we're we're light workers and then I forget the exact date, but it's 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 about a week before the insurrection. One of the channelers we follow, whose name is Lori Ladd, who is frequently referenced by Christiane Northrup, who's this massive old health influencer, issued a transmission from the Galactic Federation. Hey guys, I was just I was just lying on the floor, and they started talking to me. And here's what they said: I just need to tell you into my uh, into my Instagram feed. And this was essentially a call to New Age holy war. This was your, your light workers, and you may have judgments about certain forms of action in the world, but it, we can no longer be above the battlefield. We have to enter in, we have to hold hands and rush forward to defeat the cabal. Yeah. And it was, it, that was an incredible intersection where now it's like, okay, the, the clothing is different. You, you may have a crystal necklace around your neck, and you may not be referencing the blood of Christ, but the 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 this is this is holy war of the exact same variety, just you know, in different language. Yes, and we can say that that particular um, transmission was published on December twenty second, and when we when we went back through the online chatter, we could see that it was around those that day that uh, the initial planning chatter around January sixth. Um, bumped up to a new level. And so we also have the confounding problem of Lori Ladd probably being uh, doom scrolling on Telegram, getting excited about what she's reading and being audience captured in a way or, or red pilled by the additional urgency and just passing it on. Mm -hmm. Because what is channeling actually uh, if it's part of it doesn't involve scrolling through Telegram, like she's receiving data and this is well, what it means to her. But it's also translating. Well, so I, I was going to do this later, but I think it's probably time now because what you so here here you are talking about essentially a call to the, the, the warriors of light to become 
warriors of, of violence. I, I, the title I had now have in my head is from smoothies to swords. And so, <laughs> but, you know, it sounds like the transmission was put down your smoothie and get your sword. It's time for battle. And I guess that leads us to QAnon because now I'm thinking about the QAnon shaman. So here's the QAnon shaman who seems to uh, represent the confluence of so many traditions, the appropriation of so many traditions, including Native American traditions, somebody who's heavily influenced by QAnon, who at times is using Christian language. So let's just talk about QAnon and how it fits into this universe. It's obviously something that takes off during the pandemic. It's a time. It, it's it's something that that uh, takes off when people are feeling most vulnerable, unsure of the world and how it works. If this is the thing that's on people's minds, if this is the contemporary example par excellence, how does QAnon fit into the conspirituality uh, category? I would say that after QAnon got beyond its purely political retribution phase, mingle, intermingled with just regular 4chan shitposting and, and LARPing, and when you know, middle-class alternative health wellness practitioners started picking up bits and pieces of it that were integratable into their content and started touting the Great Awakening, uh, it began to function as the, the kind of endpoint of conspirituality commitments. So we have people like Sayer G, uh, the founder of Green Med Info and the former husband of, of Kelly Brogan. We have Christiane Northrup that Julian just referenced. We have life coaches like Bernard Gunther. These people are directly referencing QAnon on social media. And then there's a raft of wellness people that we follow who begin obsessing over hashtag save the children. But conspirituality also maintains a kind of socially acceptable distance from the pure fever dream because it already has a market to preserve. It has an economy that it has to keep running. So Bobby Kennedy can stand shoulder to shoulder with the Querdecken group in Berlin while he shouts about vaccines, or he can stand on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and shout, they're coming for your children, which is a super QAnon statement. But then he can roll back into his children children's health defense talking points. So QAnon ends up functioning as like really inflammatory clickbait for the better monetized conspiritual or conspirituality set. Um, and, and that makes it able to, to, um, that makes people like Northrop, uh, safe from getting too much deep platforming trouble, because as soon as she goes right up to the edge and starts talking on other channels or on telegram or on rumble about fantasies, about shooting, vaccinating doctors in the back of the head, uh, she can modulate her speech on, on Facebook and make sure she's just talking about turmeric. It's an amazing pivot from attacking uh, doctors to just talking about turmeric. But, you know, Julian, can I ask you about another aspect of this that I think is is quite uh, relevant, uh, especially here in the United States as we think about 2024? Page 67, conspirituality draws heavily on old fascist anxieties about sexual potency and deviancy. Conspiritualists in general are obsessed with fertility and virility on a proprietary spectrum. Uh, as we think about the future of this country, at least, uh, many of us are worried about the F word, fascism. And so I'm wondering if you could help us understand the fascist tendencies in this domain. 
Yeah, you know, this is an area where, where Matthew has done a ton of the research and the heavy lifting in terms of what we talk about in the book. I'll just say here to sort of tee him up that the anxiety around the purity of the blood, the anxiety around uh, living naturally and not not being out of harmony with the earth and with the true destiny of your race of people and with the the ways of being that keep you in touch with the wisdom of the spirit. All of that has this overlapping, rhyming kind of resonance with golden age fantasies about a kind of fascist past in which everything was simpler and cleaner and was working better for the chosen people. And, uh, and without necessarily intending consciously to resurrect or, or dabble in that energy, shall we say, uh, the, the yoga new age wellness, uh, demographic has some interesting, similar ideas. Yeah, I would say that um, one of the most contentious questions that we ask is, you know, did Nazis really love yoga? Uh, and if you, and therefore, if you love yoga today, are you, you know, stretching out your inner Nazi or something like that? And I think the complex truth of it is that while the timeline is filled with smoothies, intermittent fasting, juice cleanses, yoga postures that cleanse the liver. Uh, you know, advertisements for purified water and charcoal, whatever, and parasite cleanses, sauna detoxes. Um, there's this fascination with purity and an obsession with pollution, even on a psychological level. So you, people want to release negative vibrations. They want to realign their chakras. Unknown to most practitioners who really just want to relieve themselves of the garbage of the neoliberal landscape. <laughs> is that all of these fascinations carried the echo of, of these very old anxieties that, you know, everybody who knows anything about ancient religions and purification rituals are familiar with. But there's also a direct thread from this current iteration back to the physical culture ideals of the early 20th century, uh, where we have nationalistic movements movement driven by a deep sense of, of anxiety about the fate of the white middle classes of Europe all happening at the tail end of colonialism, where northward immigration is beginning to open up. And there's a lot of white guys who are concerned that they're going to be replaced by brown people who are more vital because they're still working in the fields and whatever. And that particular anxiety uh, becomes central to the message of early physical culturists like Eugene Sandow and Bernard McFadden, who in this bizarre kind of pizza effect um, scenario are primary influencers of the rejuvenation of yoga or postural yoga in modern India. But these guys were obsessed with what they believed was a coming white racial suicide. They complained about urban lifestyles. Uh, they were worried that you know men who were made effeminate by the same sort of industrial office lifestyles that gave the country's wealth um, that, that that lack of vitality was going to depress the white birth rate and change everything. Simultaneously, there are these anti-communist movements in Northern Europe that begin focusing really closely on the perfection of the body as a way of kind of blessing the national spirit. And so this is where the famous Nazi phrase, blood and soil comes from. So all of that gets jumbled together 
and and creates a kind of historical resonance that comes through, I would say, primarily in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s through yoga culture as it as it migrates into North America. And then yoga culture, I believe, I, I kind of see yoga culture as a as a kind of hub of worldviews and resources uh, and also infrastructure that begins to influence other forms of new spirituality, uh, including the new age. And it doesn't mean that people who take up yoga are somehow, you know, internally fascist. It does mean, however, that if you thought you were doing something progressive, you, you know, you might have another thing coming uh, when you actually look into the history. Yeah, and so the 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 cultural the culturally liberal signifiers of having a yoga mat under your arm while you're at Whole Foods getting a getting a a, a veggie juice from the juice bar don't necessarily mean you're politically progressive, even though you may feel that you are. The cultural signifiers would say, "I'm open to a spirituality from another part of the world," and so therefore, look at how <laughs> look at how liberal I am. Not necessarily the case. The two reactionary things I want to ping that that go back to your question. Uh, to some extent, Brad, is one is um, the natural way of being healthy has been lost. The natural way of being in, in pure good health that is just like our, our condition, our birthright has been lost through modern medicine that is uh, that is not holistic enough. And so vax, this is an easy pivot into anti-vax. And then anti-vax, because the evidence is not there for it, is an easy pivot into cons uh, conspiracy theories, because that's the only explanation for why. Same thing with you know alternative medicine and claims of the paranormal. The reason there isn't evidence is it's being covered up because they don't want you to know about it. So that's an easy pivot. But the other one, which you referenced specifically, is that there's a loss of connection to our innate essential masculinity or femininity, which is sacred, which is divine. And that's because of things that have happened in the culture and ways in which men and women are no longer really men and women anymore. And so there you have another political hinge point. The way you link those, I think, is going to be really helpful to people to see how you can go from yoga to anti-vax to conspiracy. I mean, you really just you can see the links in the chain so clearly of like, oh, yeah, yoga. Oh, OK, I'm going to eat in a way that restores the purity of my body. Oh, you want to inject me with a vaccine? What's in there? I don't think so. Oh, there's no evidence for the vaccines actually being hurtful. That's because of the new world order covering that, you know, and, and boom, there you go. You can see that clearly. Um, I, we're going to run out of time. So I just want to say that if we come back to the idea that there's no secular answers and that the alienation we feel as an individual or community has to be solved, that we need a cure, that we don't need to be improving the measures by which we live, but we need a cure to the problem of ourself. Well, fascism is that. Fascism is a final solution. And so you can see all the histor history and social dynamics that both of you are laying out. You can see that overlapping in this Venn diagram with mm -hmm. fascism, which promises mm -hmm. a final solution to the to and it makes certain people uh, and certain uh, others the the problem that must be solved. Um, all right. We got like five minutes. So here we go. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a really easy question. <laughs> no, not really. A lot of folks listening who have uncles or cousins or whoever's that may not be f familiar with Teal Swan, but they certainly go to the cookout and have to listen to them say, well, I heard on Joe Rogan. So is is Joe Rogan a conspiritualist? Well, let me just jump in right here because I'm so glad you made that transition before we do run out of time, because what we were just talking about actually 
is a perfect segue into this. Uh, Matthew, I don't know if you you probably remember better than I do the tweet that Joe Rogan retweeted about how soft times make soft men. What is it? Hard hard times make hard men. Like what it means to really be a tough guy. It was a. It was. It was kind of a. It was a reference to the Kali Yuga cycle of uh, eternal return. That if the society gets too comfy, that men will get soft. It's all about men, uh, and then uh, soft men will make for difficult times. But That's difficult right. times make hard men, and then yes. hard men will make make for, for soft good times. times. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. So, they, yeah. so when the men get harder. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> then the times get better. The world mm -hmm. improves because the men are tough and strong and, and are, not, are not like wimps in the face of difficulty. And when times are good, like living in a, in, a, in a democracy with a strong social safety net, well, then it turns us all into pussies who've, who've got low testosterone, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there, there's a set of relationships here that also translate across these multiple domains. Is Joe Rogan a conspiritualist? Well, Joe Rogan has a long history of being very, very open to conspiracy theories. And some of that comes from sitting in long form podcasts, which he pioneered for hour after hour, smoking joint after joint, bullshitting with his buddies, uh, several of whom are major conspiracy theorists. theorists. And I, I think there's something about that kind of subculture that gives rise to those sorts of paranoid flights of, of ideas. And then what we found through the course of the pandemic is that he trended further and further to the right. He trended from, if, if you just look at the guests that he hosted early on in the pandemic, he hosted uh, vaccine scientists who, who talked about COVID and, and talked about how pandemic spread and talked about vaccine science and how it works. And he wanted to give people the information. But by the time we get into deep into 2021, he is platforming a who's who of anti-vax, grifters, ivermectin opportunists, people who are just making millions, people who are on the radar of the Center for Countering Digital Hate as, as part of the disinformation dozen, people like Pierre Corey, who has the biggest ivermectin, you know, networked kind of money-making machine on the internet. And so is he or is he not a conspiritualist? At the end of the day, I, I don't know that it really matters. Uh, what's in his heart, what matters is that he's had a very deleterious impact on the the discourse on these topics. I am so uninterested in what is in people's hearts. I'm just going to say that as an ex-Protestant, because <laughs> like that is such a Protestant thing, right? Protestantism is all about what's in your heart. And yeah. I I am I am so tired of what is people in people's hearts. I'm really interested in what uh, they do and what they say. And I uh, the evidence to me points heavily in the direction of of all of the uh the 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 bad ways that Joe Rogan has influenced uh, our public square including including i think men in their 20s and 30s who listen can you give us one one minute uh go ahead matthew i i i go jump in go ahead i can tell yeah well well you you wanted to ask about uncles and brothers and family yes. members and, yes. and yes. what they're what they're doing if they're caught up and uh you know Maybe here uh, we can think about. Maybe here it's acceptable to think about people's hearts a little bit, <laughs> because you know all of the best advice that we've heard and put into practice about you know dealing with loved ones who have gotten neck deep into this stuff is that, to the extent that you're able, um, maintain the relationship, um, because we're talking about movements that are hyper individualistic. They're super consumerist. They're super neoliberal and aggressive, and these. 
uh, environments cannot offer stable relationship. And so if you have social capital with a person who has spun off into something that is not serving them, you've got things to bring to the table that that this mixture of paranoia and pronoia can't really offer. So I would say that it's the most important thing to do to recognize that whatever your your friend, your loved one has come to believe, that somewhere in their heart, they have a good reason. They have good incentive to believe it. Maybe they were neglected by the medical establishment. Maybe they are survivors of sexual abuse, and they've been told very specifically and, you know, uh, I don't know, clearly by their society that they're not going to experience any accountability. And you can help that person um, in in any way that you can to help them get what they need while you maintain the normalcy of the friendship. Because in you know cult studies, we say uh, there's 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 somebody who was there before this happened. And if you can remember them, if you can help them remember them to themselves, that's really valuable. Now that said, during COVID, there were countless inevitable zero-sum conflicts where you know, the red-pilled family member would just refuse to wear a mask at a family gathering, and then that just can't be worked out on the spot. It's too urgent. Somebody's going to die. So not wearing the mask is a huge challenge. But, you know, aside from those acute conflict zones, um, I would just always look for places to be patient, places to be generous, uh, not without compromising your own boundaries and safety. Appreciate that advice. I I, <clears throat> I I get asked this question a lot about Christian nationalists, and I always say that yeah, if you can maintain the relationship, do so. And if you're able to ask them about their fears, their anxieties, their worries, their yeah. hopes, that is better than saying everything you believe about the world is is so demonstrably false, and I'm dumber for listening to you. Well, you know, well, nobody's yeah. listening because nobody's actually asking them. Nobody's yeah. listening to the to the anxieties and the fears. They, that's they, exactly. they are implanting. They are implanting anxieties and fears, and that's very impersonal and it's not stable. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. All right, I have so many more questions, but I've taken up enough of your time, and uh, we need to sign off. So I want to say, friends, check out Conspirituality: How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat. It is out now. You can always check out the Conspirituality Podcast. Julian, Matthew, what are other ways people can connect with you other than the podcast and the book? Well, those uh, would be the major ways. We're also on Instagram at ConspiritualityPod. Perfect. And glad you didn't, well, anyway, glad you didn't mention Twitter or X or whatever that is these days. <laughs> and all right, as always, friends, find us at Straight White JC. Find me at Bradley Onishi. And can always use your help on PayPal, Venmo, Patreon, or an indie show. We do this three times a week. No, no major grants or outside funding. Just, uh, just us doing our best. So if that is something you can think about, that helps us a lot. Other than that, we'll be back later this week with it's in the code and the weekly roundup. But for now, we'll just say thanks for being here. Have a good day. This has been an irreverent media podcast.